This is the official HITS training and consulting podcast. We are America's law enforcement canine training resource. We're raising the training bar for police dogs everywhere by discussing the intricate details of the training techniques used by the experts. HITS radio is merging the training world with the real world. You've been there. We've been there too. Welcome back to HITS radio. I'm your host, Jeff Meyer. Today, uh, we're going to do part two with uh, Russ Kelly from Royal Cannon and Yukonuba Dog Food. Uh, we did the first part last week, went over real well. We talked about quite a bit of d- different information. Some of the takeaways was, you know, the different types of protein, different ways to look at, at food. Today, I wanted to get a little deeper in the woods with Russ about basically, you know, some of the performance part of the food. And, and one of the big things about when we're talking about feeding and work and working dogs one of my questions always is that I get from when I'm training dogs and, and I always have the same question. I've done a few different feeding schedules, but I wanted to talk to the experts uh, starting with that. So how are you doing today, Russ? I'm doing well, Jeff. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. Yeah, I appreciate you coming back on. I know you guys are, are busy there, but uh, I appreciate you sharing some of this information with our, our listeners. So, you know, let's jump right into the, the first question is, uh, do you have a preferred feeding schedule for a working dog? I mean, I really, I really do like to feed a, a light breakfast, maybe about a third of its total food for the day in the morning, and then uh, you know a heavier meal once it's cooled down at at night, end of the day. But with that said, I also you, know, you do have to take into consideration you know, how quickly is the dog going to be deployed, and I know I know that sometimes you know, that is a, a crystal ball yeah. that you're, we're asking you to do, but. Yeah. You know, if you if you suspect you're gonna you know hit the ground fairly early and you, you can't get up and feed that dog, you know, an hour or two before that deployment, it's it's hard to argue against even going just a very very light breakfast and then try to do some some snacking, you know, during the day when the dog is it has some opportunities that it's going to be, you know, resting for a while. Yeah, uh, but in, uh, from an ideal standpoint, if we if we can feed like a, a third of the volume in the morning and two thirds in the evening after it's completed work and cooled down, that's a good uh, or a good approach. And the other thing I like to do is in that morning meal, I really do like to I call it uh, you know float feeding, and it's basically just adding equal amounts of water to the food. Okay, and it's not you know it's not soaking it in it. It's just adding it almost immediately, and this is really just to ensure that the the dog is hydrating. I mean, in terms of when, you know on a day to day basis, you know the biggest danger that the dog faces on a day in day out basis is proper hydration level. So sure. by by offering that food with water in the morning, it it does at least ensure that the dog is bringing in some hydration levels, particularly when some of the, you know, some of our pointy year dogs that are working, you know, they, they tend to be very focused dogs and sometimes they, they actually forget to drink. Sure. Uh, you oh, know, they're, we, we, they're ready to go. Yeah. So, so uh, that's, I'm glad you mentioned that cause I've never, I've never been told that. In fact, I've been told the opposite that, you know, for different reasons it's bad for their teeth and everything else. So, learn something new every day and that that's why I like uh, being able to, to talk to experts like this I've not done that before but I hear what you're saying so 
adding some water to the food is not a negative thing. It's not, it doesn't change the. Yeah. And, and like I said, I'm not necessarily talking about, you know, putting the water in the food and letting it sit for yeah, you know, 45 yeah. minutes. Just, I yeah. mean, it, put the, you know, put the bowl down, add the water, let the dog drink it and eat the, eat the kibble. It's all. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. And most, most working dogs, you know, they eat real fast. So, I mean, unless it's a finicky dog that's going to mm-hmm. nibble. Um, what about like when I was in patrol? canine i worked a seven to three shift seven at night till three in the morning get home at three in the morning not at all uncommon that i was back out at four o'clock five o'clock in the morning doing more searches with those dogs i usually was in a a good habit of feeding them one time a day about 11 o'clock in the morning and that was it. it it worked but that's from what you're describing probably not ideal for every dog well you know if i were if I were working probably a seven to three, three shift, I might go just the opposite of what I just described. I might, uh-huh. you know, I might feed kind of a heavier meal when I got up, yeah, sort of a heavier breakfast, and then kind of a light meal before I, you know, I went in in the evening. I, I think the big thing is, you know, probably just finding something that's manageable, and and that's a big key. I mean, in terms of that, we can say, oh, you know, feed them, you know three hours before you go to work. If you're going to work at six in the morning, yeah, it's, you know, very few of us are <laughs> yeah. going to get up at three to feed the dog. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we have to have, there's ideal and then there's finding an approach that works for me and my dog, you know, and, and try to try to blend that to the best we can. I mean, if I were you know working that seven to three, as you just described, you know, if I, if I typically got up at around, you know, let's say I'm, you know, I'm in bed by four, I'm up by 10 or 1030. I might go ahead and feed kind of a heavier breakfast to that dog. And then before, you know, maybe 330, four o'clock, something like that, offer a, you know, a kind of a light, okay, a light meal. And then, you know, take that approach. We, what we want to avoid is basically put, you know, putting the dogs out to work with a, full GI tract, you know, a heavy load in terms sure. of the, the GI tract. Sure. We want to avoid that if we can. And uh, I know we're going to talk about heat exhaustion, but let's touch base real quick about feeding and then bloat. And I know that there's there's just so much information, and then it seems like some of that is not correct information. It changes all the time. Do you know, as, a, as we speak today, because it seems like it changes on me, how much correlation are we talking about? Say I have my patrol dog and... I've given him a heavy meal and then the phone rings and now I'm out doing a, a search. How much danger am I putting yeah. that dog in on a bloat situation? Unfortunately, Jeff, I mean, I'm going to just say we do not have really clear insights as to, you know, what's, what's yeah. basically causing this yeah. problem. You know, we look at it and say, you know, that that is a, that is a potential contributing yeah. factor. And that's the best we can do in terms of that. And it, you know, when we when we say some of these higher potential factors, you know, it's probably best to avoid them. You know, it, it's certainly not a it's not an absolute that that's going to happen. Um, yeah. But you know, but, it's like it's like anything else. We have to weigh the odds and we try to minimize. Sure. Try to minimize the risk. Yeah. And that was one of the reasons why I'd kind of gone to a one once a day feeding, as I'm pretty paranoid about bloat, so I thought that might be a thing, but. From what you're describing, it seems like you're definitely advocating feeding twice a day and basically work around your schedule and just figure out 
you know, and it doesn't have to be 50-50. It sounds like it's almost even better to do 75-25 or, you know, break it up to a, a lighter meal and a, a heavier meal. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that tends to work well for most dogs. I won't yeah. say for all, sure. but, you know, in terms of, especially, you know, as you get more and more of the, you know, and more and more of the labs involved in the, you know, in the use for, for detection work. Sure. You know, certainly getting them to eat is not an is no. not an issue. <laughs> you know, we want the dog basically out there in the field, focused on, you know, focused on its activities and its job. You know, not necessarily being unsatisfied and or being hungry. Sure. I mean, in terms of that, I, I sure. mean, you know, I always try to avoid making these human comparison, but you know, in this case, I will. You know, we probably would not perform our best if we were really, really, really hungry. Sure. And uh, I suspect that the, the dogs are not, they're better than us at being able to, to focus, but uh, it still may be a distractor in terms of their performance. You know, if we've got a dog out there that's, you know, yeah. hungry, and, and certainly labs are pretty much, they're, you know, they're always willing to eat. Oh, yeah. <laughs> years and years ago, going back 25 years, I would hear people who would, you know, they'd advocate that, you know, dogs hunt better when they're hungry. So if you have like a big certification coming up or something big coming up, then don't feed them for a day. Don't feed them for two days. I don't hear that much anymore, but because I heard it back then, I suspect yeah. there's some people out there that are doing that right now. Can you touch on, I, I, I never liked it, never did it, but is there any logical, if anybody's hearing this from a trainer saying, don't feed them for the two days before the cert, is there any logic to that at all? I've never seen any any evidence that that would be anything but detrimental. Yeah. Now, I think, you know, with that, we don't want to feed them a big meal yeah, and then throw sure. them out in the field to, to work. I can envision no physiological yeah. mechanism that would be improved with basically okay. the, the five, or denying nutrients. Yeah. Well, and I hope it's not happening, but, you know, there, there's people who still do some kind of old school crazy stuff, I guess, so... When we, we, we touched on it, but I think, you know, this time of year, it's really important to, to talk about heat stress. So we, you know, we've done quite a few uh, things about some of the mechanical features we can put in our cars to prevent the, the dog from overheating in the car. But I'd like to talk to you about how much does the nutrition that's going into the dog and his, his food and his feeding schedule and the amount of water, and then I go out and work him. Can you kind of give me an overview of how that all ties together and what are some suggestions you have? Because I know that's something that you're quite passionate about and that you're right. you're well versed on. So I'd like to right. just kind of give you the microphone and explain that. Yeah, I mean, I'll start out and basically just point out that you know, water hydration is a huge, huge factor in terms of, of basically protecting our dogs from heat stress. And uh, we have to keep in mind. I mean, of the nutrient classes, water is one of those, and it is from a a uh, volume standpoint, it is the greatest nutritional requirement the dog has. And that's, you know, whether we're talking a pet or whether we're talking a, a working dog, that's the case. And then the more active we are with the dog, then the greater the amount of, of water is required. So that is step one, making sure that you keep your dog well hydrated.
Okay, before we move on to step two, I want to I want to touch a few questions. I'm working my dog, whether he's detection or he's patrol. Say it's a, a, a training day, and we're doing you know a few different exercises, and I'm putting him back in the car. How much water can I give him in the car? And I mean, my thought on this has always been coming from I'm scared I'm going to get the, let the dog bloat if I give him too much water. Right. So, uh, yeah, and we, we certainly don't want you know large volumes of, of water being taken in at any one given time. I, a good rule of thumb, and this is this is a rule of thumb. This is a good starting point. Sure. That the minimum, the minimum amount of water that a dog should take in a day is about three times the number of cups of food that you're feeding. So if you're feeding four cups of food a day, then that dog should be, you know, thinking about somewhere, you know, 12 cups of food throughout the day. 12 cups of water. And, yeah. uh, and you know, it's one of those where, you know, you say, well, I really want to, how am I going to figure that out? Uh, you know, one thing is a pretty, if you have a clean, you know, gallon milk jug. Sure. You can, you know, stick that in your patrol car, and every time you give them water, whether it's be a bowl or a squirt bottle or ever how you're going to use it, I mean, you can sort of keep up with how much Absolutely. you've given that dog. Absolutely. And it's, you know, it's not anything fancy, but it's something that you can use and get a good guide on. But with that said, the, you know, particularly this as we're coming up on this time of year, I mean, the, you know, the humidity's going to be pretty high uh, climbing. And the temps are going to be coming up, which both of those are sort of negative in terms of the dog, you know, maintaining optimal uh, sure. body temperatures. Sure. You know, the higher the humidity, the harder it is for the dog to control. The hotter it is, the harder it is for the dog to control. And they lose a lot of water trying to. I mean, the term panning is their, uh, that is their key means of dissipating the heat. And when they pant, they lose a lot yeah. of water vapor. And if we're not replacing it, then the dog becomes, you know, the dog becomes more dehydrated. And with the dehydration, you know, the heart has to work harder. And, all, you know, all of this just contributes to the dog being, you know, getting closer and closer to, to having a thermal, thermal-related illness. And I think it's important for the officers to spend some time educating themselves on the signs of thermal stress, you know, just of panning the sort of gaped mouth. Yeah. Certainly from a, a standpoint, if we see a dog that's basically losing coordination or uh, seems to be having difficulty acknowledging a command, you know, that, dog, that dog's in trouble. Yeah. And I'll, I'll I'll tell you a personal anecdote is that, you know this was drilled into me when I first started. Thank God it was you know they but it was very much you know stressed early on in my canine career and then I've always been you know paid attention to it. But I had a, one of my dogs that I was working we got called out on an afternoon search. Uh, it was a dual purpose patrol dog a Malinois and we were out on a, a pretty hot day. But I you know started off with the idea of it's a real hot day we're going to be real careful figure out where we're going. We got into a yard, and this dog was a very, very high-drive Malinois. He walked over, and he laid down in the shade and spread his his legs way out. And he had never, I mean, this was a dog that wanted to go find people right away. And, I mean, it was like one yard he was normal, and the next yard he walked over and laid down. He had never done that before. So I was like, wow. So I called him. He was real slow to the command. So all the signs were there. 
But why I say that is what surprised me then and still surprises me when I think about it to this day is how fast that came on. It was yeah. it was almost everything's fine. I know he's hot, but he wasn't excessively panting. And then all of a sudden it was boom, I'm in trouble. Uh, luckily, we actually, I carried him just down the street, threw him in the patrol car, which was still running nice and cold. I got water in him and he really came back right away. But I yeah. would worry somebody might have thought, you know, my dog's just been a, you know, crazy today. So I'm going to force him to get up and start working again. And most dogs would probably, you know, would maybe respond and try and work through that. Um, but it comes on, at least my experience was that it came on very, very fast. Yeah, it, it, and it can. I mean, it can go from a dog being, you know, perfectly normal, high drive to a dog that, that's in trouble. You know, it, you know, in terms of, you know, unfortunately for your line of work, you know, if you're pursuing a suspect, it's kind of hard to say, oh, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to sit back and take a, a five minute break to cool the dog down. Well, um, you know, actually, yeah. <laughs> I think that's one of our, our disadvantages sometimes, whether we're talking about the, the health of the dog or tactics, you know, there's, you know, good tactics and good things. So, you know, I, I'll give you an example of it. That is hard, but it works. When we would do searches on very, very cold nights, I got to where we would build in and we'd say, you know, at the end of this block, we're all going to get in our cars so we could warm the dog up, but it was really so we could warm ourselves up. But at least right. if we built that in, uh, we did a, a episode on this topic last spring, and we talked to some guys from Florida, and they advocated the exact what we're talking about is that there's a point where you're going to build in a break for the dog and get the dog in the car and get some water in him and right. check in on him. You know, even if it doesn't seem like he needs it, you know, we're going to catch that guy eventually. If we've got a good perimeter, right. we're gonna we're gonna find him. Right. And I think that, you know, in terms of that, the, the big key is really making sure that the, is that you're, you're conditioning the dog in the environment that it's going to be, you know, going to be working in. So, you know, I'm going to say for you, in, in, yeah. in terms of the description that you, you know, you've talked about seven to three, you know, if that's going to be your shift, you know, when you're doing your training, those are the environments that you should be doing a lot of conditioning in terms of your dog. If your shift is in the middle of the day, then that's when you should be conditioning because, you know, in terms of, of thinking about, you know, worst case scenario, uh, these dogs are riding around in an air-conditioned car. You know, that is a big shift when they, they jump yeah, out yeah. of that car and it's, you know, it's 95 degrees, high humidity, that is a big change in terms of their environment and they, in the conditioning, you know, when they're doing their, their conditioning and training, that is the environment they should be working in. And with that tolerance, they, they do build up a tolerance or become better able to handle the, the heat. Sure, sure. You know, in terms of the cold, you know, unless the dog gets wet, yeah. um, most of the time we don't have to be overly concerned with hypothermia it certainly can occur uh, if, if particularly if they have a you know thin thin coat you know if the yeah. dog gets wet that's a different story sure but certainly we you know, we lose a, you know far more dogs with hyperthermia or elevated body temp than we do hypo sure and we've talked about the water component is there a food and nutrition component that maybe helps dogs regulate any of this 
Well, I mean, certainly from a, a standpoint of, of having you know, proper balances between the energy sources, the, the fat, the protein, and the, the carb. I mean, there is some some evidence that suggests that you know these really high protein diets may um, you know may elevate body temps a little bit when they're exercising. Okay. Um, but you know, from a, from a nutritional standpoint, it's really you know it is really about providing the you know proper level of energy uh, and nutrients, hydration, conditioning. And then body condition. Body condition is, you know, extremely important. I mean, you cannot, you know, if, if nothing else, if there's no other reason to keep your dogs from being overweight is, uh, sure. you know, in, ter- in terms of, of heat buildup, an obese dog, it's going to get in trouble. Sure. Yeah. So, so I, I kind of bring it full circle back to nutrition. I have one other uh, question that we haven't really talked about in either of the episodes. You see a lot of the stuff about grain-free, not grain-free. I know that's some bit of a controversial topic. Can you touch on that? Kind of explain: is there a benefit or not a benefit, or is it is it more is that more yeah, of an I'm advertising not, uh, thing? I will say that um, you know I'm not a fan of them. I'm not gonna you know, I'm not gonna call out. Sure. You know I'm gonna say I'll be negative towards someone else's products, but. You know, I'm not a fan of them. I don't think it's the healthiest way to, to feed a dog. I, I, you know, in terms of the, you know, in, in, in terms of the materials used, it really comes down to the nutrient profile and the digestibility of the materials that takes nutritional quality. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are, they will, they will hear grain free and think, oh, you know, it's low in carbs. And, uh, Carbs are not, there's not an absolute nutritional requirement for carbohydrates by the dog. They can sustain themselves without carbohydrates. But, you know, with that said, they have a metabolic requirement for glucose. And really the the two reasons that we provide small amounts of carbohydrates in a dog's diet, A, is to be a source of glucose and then uh, a source of fiber. Both of those both of those are extremely important for the dog, and it's it's so much more efficient to get supply glucose in that manner than to overfeed uh, protein to basically have them, you know, go through the, the uh, metabolic process to to convert amino acids to glucose. That's very, it's very inefficient. They can okay. certainly do it, but it's just not ideal. Sure. And, you know, we've talked also about, you know, just all the research. I know you're heavily involved in that. So is dog food kind of always changing a little bit? Or, like, are your main your main brands at your company are always the same formula? Or do you are you constantly tweaking those a little bit? How does that work on the dog food side of it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for those of us in, in research and development, we, we put in a lot of time and effort to figure out how to better feed a dog every sure. day. You know, we want to see those. We want to see those advancements, advancements incorporated into the products, and that's you know that's our livelihood. Sure. In terms of, of so even so, even if I'm feeding the same, say Yukonuba product, maybe behind the scenes that's getting some minor tweaks that I don't even realize. Uh, as you know, if I'm going, if I'm feeding that same one year in year out. Yeah, I mean, you may see in terms of like the benefits that are on package. 
you know, you may yeah. see those change from one year to another, or, or perhaps, you know, perhaps a benefit stays on a package for two or three years. You know, with that, generally, generally speaking, when we have new technologies that, that advance into the, the commercial side, you know, we try to promote it, we try sure. to bring that, bring that forward. But uh, certainly there is very few products that are not being looked at, you know, continually of how do we improve it. Uh, yeah. I mean, we, we constantly strive to better serve the dogs and cats that, that consume our products. Our goal is to improve their health and uh, improve their performance. Sure. So it, it kind of bring everything full circle. Um, as I mentioned, I have two dogs and I'm feeding them the same food right now. But, you know, these kind of talks always motivate me. And I think, you know, can I do better for them? So, you know, using me as an example, but I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably feeling the same way. If I want to explore a better dog food, where do I start? Do I go get some samples and then feed half and half? Or as we mentioned, you know, when you got dogs that are working well and things are going good, but if, if I start thinking, you know what, maybe I, I want to work on getting a, a dog that's, you know, get 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 them off the do- grain-free diet, for example, or whatever. Can you tell me what, what are some easy ways to first figure out which food I want? How do I test that food if the dog is going to work well for him? And are there good ways to transition over to a different food if this has motivated someone to start thinking about doing that? Transitioning from one food to another you know, you want to do that slow. I mean, in terms of that, then you may be going from a really good product to another really good product, but they are built differently. Sure. And the bacteria that are within the GI tract, they are used to the food that you're feeding. And so you, you basically have to get them used to to the new matrix, as well as some of the amounts of, of the dogs on digestive enzymes may need to adjust a little bit. Otherwise, we end up with some stool issues. Yeah. It may not be a tr- true health consequence to the dog, but it's certainly messy for us. Oh, yeah. So in terms of that, you know, think about transitioning seven days or so, certainly no quicker than four. But, you know, if I had a dog that had a really sensitive stomach or sensitive GI system, I might push that out to, you know, seven to ten days. But, you know, for most dogs, four, four to seven days is a, is a good period of time. Uh, now you may find that if you're staying within a brand and you're just there may be formulas that are very similarly designed and you can do it quicker. Sure. Um, but typically, if you're going to be going from one brand to another, that change is is more dramatic. And in terms of where to start, I mean, I think really, you know, in terms of talking with their you know fellow handlers, you know, if they happen to be at a a trade show and, sure. and have a chance to, to visit with a, you know, with a yeah. food rep, you know, they may be able to, to get a, you know, a sample or, you know, maybe even be able to, to say, Hey, well, you know, try this and, and uh, it will be enough to, to give you a good idea. And I think that's the other thing. If they're going to trial a food, you know, it has to be enough to where they can evaluate, you know, one sure. meal is not going to tell no. you anything. You know, no, it's it, going to have to be a period of, you know, two to three, four weeks of time, you know, to evaluate how well is this working for my dog. Sure. Yeah. So, and and get over that that rough patch because every time I've changed food, there is the rough patch. Maybe the dogs, the stools, the 
the schedule that the dog uses to, to go to the bathroom seems to change a but, little bit. But once you yeah. get over that rough patch, you know, pretty much any dog can handle that once they get used to the new food, can't they? Yeah. Well, that's all good information. And I, again, I appreciate you taking the time today. I think we'll probably generate some interest in this. So if possible, I'll hold on to some questions and maybe in a couple of weeks, I'll bring you back and we'll talk about some uh, listener questions if we get some. And, uh, sure. and in the meantime, if, uh, if they don't want to send me the question, I'll put your contact information in the show notes, if that's all right. And, uh, you can contact Russ directly with your uh, dog food questions. Sure, that's fine. Okay. So. All right, Russ, All right, Jeff, well, thank, thank you. you. It was a pleasure to talk with you, and, and uh, I guess I uh, look forward to, to talking with you again in the yep. future. I appreciate all your time. Thank you very much. All right. All right. All right.